title today is Made to Serve, Made to Serve. I only have one point, and that point is in the title, and it is that we are made to serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that I, uh, who have committed much sin in my life, get the privilege of calling God my Father um, because of what Jesus has done in bringing me uh, into a relationship with you and bringing us into a relationship with you. And so thank you for that great reality that I get to call you dad, um, that I get to serve um, as one of the pastors here. I'm, I'm truly privileged by that. And more uh, than all those things, Lord, um, I'm grateful for Christ and what he's done, because apart from him, none of that would be a reality. Uh, so thank you for this uh, opportunity to preach your word. Uh, be with me. Give me strength. Go before me, um, prepare the hearts of your people. May it be rich ground that your word can fall on and bear much fruit um, to the glory of your name and the glory of your son. In your name we pray, amen. amen. You can be seated. So that, that job I was uh, telling you about, it is a very interesting job. Um, it, it causes me to travel a, a little bit. Last year um, was one of my busier uh, travel years. I was in China for two weeks. I was in Russia for another two weeks. And I was in, about in Argentina for a week. And these are all very different places, right? very different parts of the world. South America, sort of Eastern Europe, sort of in, near in, in Moscow, um, China, which is in Asia, very different places. Different foods, different style of dress, um, all kinds of things. Weather, very, very different. And one of the things that was very similar, though, regardless of where I was, one of the things that was very similar are the stories that I heard. Whether I was in Argentina or China or Russia, people told me stories. When I was in Argentina, I learned about Evita, who was a political leader who, who died young and died a tragic death. And they still remembered her. Decades later, they talked about her as if she had just died. And there was a a sense of sorrow that they had lost this leader that they cared for. When I was in Russia, they told me about the Great War, World War II. They call it the Great War. And they talked about how their fathers had to defend their nation from the invasion of the Nazis and how they sacrificed to protect their country. When I was in China, I, get to saw, I got to see the Great Wall of China. And they talked about the Great Wall with such pride as if they had been there as if they had participated, because it was something that they could point to and say, our nation did this great thing. They told me these stories, not just because I was a newcomer, that was part of it, but these were stories they told each other. They were common stories about their country, about their history. They pointed to momentous events in the, in the history of their nation that had defined them as a people. They told me these stories because it was who they were. And we are the same way. In a couple of weeks, we'll have July 4th, and we'll, we'll celebrate the Declaration of Independence being signed. And we'll tell our stories about independence and liberty. I have a toddler, and she always asks me, why, Daddy? Why are we doing these things? And so this year, when we have a barbecue, she's probably going to say, why are we having this barbecue? What's this grill thing? Why are we doing this? And I will explain to her July 4th, Independence Day, and the, and the concepts. And so just like the Russians, the Argentinians, the Chinese, we have our own stories that we tell. Stories that remind us of who we are. And every story has a theme. Themes of sacrifice, liberty, freedom, 
Every story has a theme. But what's powerful about this is that as Christians, we too have a story. We too have a story that tells us who we are, what we're about, where we have come from, where we are going. And that story is about a great God, a great king, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who said to Moses, I am that I am. The one who let, led Israel out of slavery and into the promised land. That is our story. The story of a great God who rules and reigns and for eternity has ruled over all things. In power and splendor and might. That is our story. But this story of this great king had, had a turning point. A turning point where this great king had to make a choice. He heard a call. A call to go and to serve, to give up his glory, and he had to make a choice. And he made that choice. He, he heard the call and he made a choice to serve and he stepped into a world. He, he gave up the rightful worship that he had received for all eternity. He had myriads and myriads of angels all around him crying, holy, holy, holy. And he had to step down. He stepped into a world where he had to hunger and thirst, be rejected by those he came to serve, to live a life of suffering, a meager life. He had no, no great title. He, he led no armies. He had no political office this great king. At the end of it, he died. Not a glorious death. He had no state funeral. He died a bloody death. A brutal death. A death of sacrifice. This is our story. And so Paul, in this chapter, in this book, he's reminding the Philippians of this story. And he reminds them of this story for the same reason that the Argentinians told me about Evita. Because it says something about who we are. It defines us. And so at the end of his life, as he's in prison, not knowing when he might die, he writes this letter to a church that he cares deeply about, the Philippian church. He had partnered with him over the years. So he writes a letter to them. And in, in the first part of chapter 1, he says, I thank my God when I remember you. He talks about his deep affection for them. He celebrates the fact that they have supported him and encouraged him. And because he has a relationship with them, he tells them then about himself and how he's doing. He says in verse 12 of chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And he continues to tell them how he's doing. And then in verse 27, he starts to shift a little bit. So he, 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 he tells them how he's doing, and then he, he starts to instruct them, to give them some, some, some things to hold on to. In verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he continues down through chapter 2, saying to them, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. He's giving them instructions. But then in chapter, in, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he, he starts to shift to tell them this story. The story of service. The story of the suffering servant. The history 
of Christ. Because he wants them at the end of his life, as he's passing on this letter, he wants them to know who they are. What is the source of their identity? And our identity is grounded in what Christ has done. And so as he told them that story, the story of the suffering servant, so I want to tell you, Epiphany, that story about the suffering servant, and to make the same call to you that Paul made to the Philippian church, to follow in his footsteps, to walk in service, to give your life, to make a commitment as the Christ made a commitment, made a choice to serve. And that call starts in verse 5, where he says, Have this mind. The phrase here, have this mind, requires volition. It means to be disposed earnestly, to interest oneself in, to direct one's mind to a thing, to seek, to strive. Paul connects the call to these people to serve to the choice that the Christ had to make. For all of eternity, he was God ruling over everything, lacking in nothing, controlling billions. Anything that he wanted, anything that he dreamed, he could have it. And then he had to make a choice. He heard a voice from his father at some point in eternity past. The father said to the son, it's time. It is time for you to go. It is time for you to to set aside, to step down from your throne to veil your majesty, to veil your glory, and to go into the world. And he was presented with a choice of what does he do at this great, pivotal moment, this turning point in his story? How will he respond? And he responded by being obedient, by humbling himself, by setting aside his glory, by becoming a baby. He who had power and majesty soiled himself had to be carried around in his mother's arms, had to be nursed, had to learn, had to study, had to grow up as a boy, obedient to his parents. He made a choice. And so Paul, reminding them of this story, calls us. He calls the Philippian church. He says, have this mind. Make a choice. Make a commitment to serve. Follow in the footsteps of the one who has gone before us and have this mind. And I want to give you a very clear, tangible example of what that means. Because when he says have this mind, it's it's not an intellectual choice. That's part of it. But it is is a commitment of the full will, the, the volition, your affections even. It is a call to commit yourself in totality to serving, to following in the footsteps of the suffering servant. And it's not a passive activity. And you can see it very, very clearly in how you respond to situations. So I want to give you an example. I want to give you a situation to to clarify what this means. Let's say you're, you're a member here at the church, and you come in on one Sunday, and you know, everybody walks through this lobby into those doors, and you take your seat. As you're, as you're coming in, maybe you have a guest with you, you notice that the trash can in the lobby is just overflowing. It's full of trash, it might even smell, it's falling out onto the floor. You can respond in, in, in several ways, but the most common way is probably to say, 
what is going on? Like, somebody needs to get this together. Where, where is the facilities team? Like, wh why is there trash in the lobby? My guest is now offended. Like, what's going on? Right? That's how most of us would respond, right? The other way to respond is to say, to walk up to, say, one of the greeters and say, I see the trash is full. Is full. I want to empty it for you. Where do you keep the trash bags? Do you see the difference there? In one mind, there is the expectation that I will be served. That someone will keep my environment clean for me. And I'm offended when that doesn't happen. Right? I'm offended when that doesn't happen. I have the expectation that you will serve me. In the other mind, there is the commitment, the posture, to say, I see a need. I am a servant. Let me meet that need. Let me offer myself. Let me use my hands and serve. Let me be willing to get my fingers dirty in my Sunday best so that I might serve. That is what it means to have this mind. It is the path. It is the choice that the Christ made. And he tells them this story to call them to walk in his footsteps, to have the mind of the suffering servant. It is a call that, he, that I make to you, that the Lord makes to you, to have this mind, to serve, not just passively, not to sit in your seat, but to, to take action, to make a choice to serve, to roll up your sleeves, to get your hands dirty, to have this mind. And all of us are called to it. All of us are called to it. Because he goes on to say, have this mind among yourselves. So this mind is, is not just individually, but for us as a community, we are to be a community of servants. We are all to have this mind, all to be controlled by this commitment to serve. I'll give you, give you another example. I, I took up gardening last year. It's a funny story, actually. I, was, I think my wife sent me to the grocery store for flour or something. And I was in the path mark, walking down the aisle, looking for flour or something else. I don't remember what it was. And I saw they had this display of seeds just up in the, in the path mark. And I was like, oh, seeds. I think I'll start gardening. <laughs> no lie. That's what happened. That's what happened. And that's unlike me, too. That's, that's what happened. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll buy some, I, I saw okra, so I bought some okra, and I forget what else I buy. bought, I bought a bunch of seeds, went home, and I was like, Ruth, I'm going to start a garden. And I was like, you going to help me? And she was like, no. <laughs> and I was like, why? And she was like, Nyron, why would I dig in dirt? And I was like, okay, all right. I love my wife. She's, she's, she's honest. She's honest. So... I decided I was going to garden, and I have, a, I have a, a little patch of grass in my backyard, like, you know, Philly Row home, not much. I'm grateful to have grass at all, right? But I, I, got, I got a little patch. Amen. Got a little patch. It's maybe, it's, it's not, not as wide as the stage, and maybe, like, it's small, right? It's small. So I decided, okay, I got this little grass. I want to I get, this, get this garden into this grass. I went on YouTube, read videos, all kinds of things. I was like, okay. So I got to get the, I never gardened before. But I learned very quickly that gardening in Philly is not like gardening in the burbs, right? 
So all those videos I was watching, it was very different. <laughs> so, because here's what happened, here's what happened. So I, I went on Amazon, I went to Home Depot, I bought all these tools, and I bought this thing called a fork. It, it, it looked like a big fork, like it has prongs at the end, and it's like a long handle, and it has a handle at the, the top. So you gotta hold it with two hands, and you're supposed to, you put it into the ground, and you turn it, so you rip up the grass and the soil and everything, right? So I, so I started doing that, and I was like, okay, I got my little fork, got, you know, got all ready, got my work clothes on, got outside, and I, I have a desk job, right? So I'm, I'm, I don't do this, but, <laughs> but I was like, I'm gonna get this garden in. Bought the seeds and everything. It's probably a little pride too, because like Ruth was, ain't gonna help me, so I'm gonna get this done. So I, 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 I got this fork, I'm, and, I, and I started digging, right? So I, I put the, 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 the fork down in, you gotta push it down with your legs and your back, you gotta turn it, so you rip the grass up, and you gotta lift it, to get the stuff out of the, of the way. And after you get all the grass out, then you gotta dig some more because you gotta loosen up that dirt. Because it's been there for a lot of years, right? It's, it's real packed in, so you gotta loosen it up so the roots can get in there. I learned a lot on YouTube. So, <laughs> so I start digging, right? And the guys on YouTube are just like, you know, they're going at it, right? So, but I start digging and I start hitting stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, what is this? Like, and I, as I go down, I start getting rocks out. And these rocks like the size of my head, like really big rocks. Because apparently when they build row homes, maybe it's just mine, but when they build, they kind of, they dump the soil. They put rocks and all kinds of stuff like underneath it all. And so you, that little grass underneath that is like all kinds of stuff, right? And I had to get all that out. So it took me weeks to dig it all out with my little fork and my shovel. I'm going at it, right? Eventually I got it done, right? And then I had to go get some compost. By the way, you can get free compost in Philly, so ask me about that later. Um, but I, I went and got some compost, big heavy bags of compost, threw that on, on the dirt, turned that in again, right? Then I got to put the seeds in, I got to water, I got to weed, right? Lots of work. But at the end of the summer, right around August, I started to be able to reap the fruit. I had tomatoes, had some okra, had some zucchini. We ate, and ate good, right? <laughs> I, 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 I was, I, I enjoyed it, right? And I, I ate, my wife ate, my kids ate. I had so much food, I started delivering tomatoes to my neighbors, <laughs> right? I literally, I would take bags and go across the street and like, hey, got some tomatoes. Everybody got food, we all ate, right? So me, my family, my neighbors all ate. But it was a full body workout. My hands were tired, my back was tired, my legs were tired, my core was tired. Everything was involved in all that work, but, because my whole body was involved, and because I worked at it, there was fruit, and we all ate. And so it is with the body of Christ, that we together are members, one of another and of the body of Christ, with Christ being the head overall. That mind suffuses, just like my mind had to coordinate all the different muscles and everything to get the work done so the fruit could be born and people could eat. So it is with us as a body. And so he said, have this mind among yourselves, members of the body of Christ. Do your role. Come on, because imagine if my hands had said, I'm too blistered. I'm tired of this. Or my back had said, you know what, I'm, I'm sore. I'm doing all the work. The legs ain't carrying the weight enough. <laughs> right? If any part of my body had given out, there would have been no food. There would have been no fruit. I would not have been able to be nourished. My family would not have been nourished. My neighbors would not have been nourished. And so it is with the body of Christ. That he calls all of us 
to have this mind among ourselves, to do our role so that the body itself can be fruitful, so you can go and do the work that God has called us to. In fact, later on in, in, the, in, in Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. We have work prepared for us. We should walk in them. Have this mind among yourselves. Serve together. As my mom used to say, many hands make work light. We are called to serve together. Individually, my hands had to grip that fork. Individually, the back had to push. But it's because all of it worked together that the work was able to be done. And so the question is, will you serve? Will you play your role in, in what God is calling his body to do? Because individually, we can make a commitment, but, but together, he calls us to have this mind among ourselves, to bear fruit for the body and for the world. And he goes on telling them the story. He says, which is yours in Christ Jesus? Have this mind among yourselves as a community of servants, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So that mind that we talked about, it, it, it fills the entire body. But it's very interesting because he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I talked about earlier how it's an effort. It's, a, it's a, an act of the will. You have to commit yourself fully. But what am I committing myself to if it's already there? If it's yours in Christ Jesus, what, what will does it require? What effort is there? What work is there if it's mine already? And that is an excellent question. Because the effort that I'm talking about here, the effort that the Spirit has inspired Paul to call us to, is not the same effort as the Buddhist does when he says, I need to be detached from the world. It's not the same effort as the Muslim might say when he says, I must pray five times a day, and I must, I must do it at a very specific time. I must work hard to do that. Or I must work hard to follow the law of Allah. It's not the effort of the non-religious person who might say, I, I need to work hard to live a moral life. I must do good in the world. It's very different. There is still effort, but it's a very different type of effort. For the Christian, the will to serve, the gift to serve, the mission, the call to serve, are empowered by the Lord. They're fully given to you. So why talk about choice? Why the call if everything is mine in Christ? If I already have this mind, what is there to choose? So I'll, I'll give you another example. Epiphany is a, a very uh, apple-loving church. Let's put it mildly. It's one of our idols, I think. We love Macs. Love Apple computers, and I, and I do too. And, and years ago, we, we bought a Mac. Uh, I actually bought it for Ruth because she was in grad school and needed a new computer. So we bought a Mac, really nice computer. But I didn't tell her that one of the things I was excited about is that Apple had just changed the Macs, and they were now, um, they could now run Windows. They were Intel machines, right? So, and the reason I was excited about that is because from when I was a kid, there was this game I always wanted to play. And I never had a Windows machine, so I wasn't able to play it. So when, Ruth, when we got the Mac, we started using it, but it was not possible for me to run this game on this computer because it was a Mac, right? And so what I did 
So essentially, the, the operating system, the, the, the heart of the machine, was incompatible with what I wanted to use it for. So what I did is I went out, and it was sacrilege for some of you, I went out and I bought Windows, right? Gave Microsoft my money, right? Went out and bought Windows, I brought it home, actually I think I downloaded it, and I created a partition on the hard drive. I split the hard drive in two, and I installed Windows on that hard drive. Downloaded, installed it, set it up, right? And so I was able to install my game on Windows and play my game, because I, I was like, okay, good, right? <coughs> Something interesting happened, though. The next time Ruth used the computer, something happened that hadn't happened before. She was presented with a choice. It, it gave her this screen where it said, on this side it had the Windows logo, and this side it had the Mac logo. And she had to choose. Now, the operating system, the nature of that Windows machine, of that Mac machine, it was all there. Fully paid up, fully available, fully capable, but she had to choose which one am I going to go with. They were both available. It's the same thing with us. When you were saved, the Lord injected into you a new nature. Fully paid for. Christ went out just like I did and paid for it. His Holy Spirit got a hold of you and downloaded it fully into your, into your this hard drive of your soul. You lack nothing. Nothing of what you need to walk in the mind of Christ is missing. It is all there. Everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you. Fully there. But moment by moment, you are presented with a choice. Do I walk by the Spirit or do I walk by the flesh? That nature is there. It's available. It's paid for. It's yours. It is yours in Christ Jesus. But what will you choose? Because Christians are really the only people who have free will. Christ said, he said, he who sins is a slave to sin. Just like that Mac had only one option before. You have a corrupt operating system if you don't know Jesus. You are born with one instruction. Commit sin. Commit sin. Commit sin. Commit sin. That is all you could do. You could not choose another path. You were fully and completely, as David said, I was born in iniquity and conceived in sin. But when Christ got a hold of you, he gave you a new nature. The old has passed and the new has come. But the flesh is still there. And as 2 Peter says, they war against one another. They are opposed to one another. But you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are empowered to choose the new nature. To nail that old man to the cross, as Paul talks about in Romans. And so when he says, have this mind, he's talking about that choice. Later on, he will say, work out your salvation. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But you still have to work. You still have to make that choice, that commitment, that act of the will of your affection to say, I will choose the new nature. But he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So make the choice. Make the commitment to serve. Walk by the Spirit. And he goes on to tell them the story. He says, who though he was in the form of God, 
He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What he's saying here when he says he was in the form of God, he's saying Christ was and is and forever shall be God. There was never a time when Christ was not God. There was a time when he was not a man, but there was never a time when he was not God. In everything that God is, Christ has always been. He is eternally existent as God. At some point in time, though the Father had set this plan for eternity, there came a time, a moment, when he called the Son to go. And the Son took on a new nature. But for eternity he was God. And so he says, though he was in the form of God, in everything that God is in his form, Christ eternally is. Not was, is. When he said, I am that I am, I do not change. I am God, period. That is who Christ is. Though he was in the form of God, though he was resplendent in glory, full of majesty, commanding all before him, having no peer and no equal, the form of God, worshiped continually. Though he was in that form, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not hold it tightly. So at the moment when his father said, go, lay it aside, obey me and go to a people who will reject you, go and give your life for them, he willingly did it, willingly obeyed, came into a dark and a desperate world, not to be worshipped, not to be adored, but to be rejected, to be crucified, to die a bloody death, a shameful death, a death reserved for criminals in the lowest of the low. But he made that choice. And this, when he says this form of God he goes on to talk about another form. He said he, he, he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He's talking about the incarnation. And there, there's, this is a very important moment in the story of Christ that we have to really recognize how unique and how powerful this is. Because we, we talk very often about incarnational ministry, and I know exactly what we mean by that, and I, and I support the heart behind it. To give up, maybe you're, maybe you're in the birds, maybe you have some money or something, and you, you want to move and incarnate in a community or a, na- or a neighborhood where you can do some good. I just completely understand that. But that is not really incarnating. And I want to make, make it very plain, plain from this verse. I think sometimes when we talk in that terminology, we we come close to equating ourselves with what Christ has done. And we, we cannot. It is absolutely unique. And, I, and you can see it very clearly in this verse. He says, though he was in the form of God, right, and later on he says the form of a servant, and he uses interchangeably the form of a servant with the form of men. But there are only two forms. The word form is used in two places. There is the form of God, The form of the ruler, the master, the king, the Lord, eternal. And in this form, in this category, there is only the triune God. Only the triune God. And separate from that form, separate from that unique form, 
That great form is another form. The form of a servant. The word form means the nature of the thing. The form of, and in this category, there are billions of beings. He says even of the angels, they are our ministering spirits. And notice for us, he uses interchangeably with the form of a servant, the form of man, form of mankind. Everything that is not God was made to serve God. And Colossians says that everything was made through him and for him. That the purpose of all that exists that is not God is to bring pleasure and to serve God. And so this form of God, completely distinct, completely separate, not in any way mingled with servants, this form of God, the Christ forever was in this form. And there came a moment where he did something amazing and unique. He who was God stepped into the form of a servant, but did not let go of the form of a God. He united them. The form of God, the form of a servant, united in one person. The incarnation. It is absolutely unique. When we give up our rights, when we move neighborhoods, we do not incarnate. I understand the point. I get it. I support it. But be careful about equating what you do to the unique and absolutely amazing incarnation of the God-man. There is only one who can say, I am fully God and fully man. I am fully ruler and king, and I am fully servant and I am humble. I am the lion and I am the lamb. There is only one. He who was in the form of God took on the form of a servant. And he calls us, he points us to this story, this pivotal moment when he made this choice. He's reminding us, make the choice, but remember, worship him for what he has done. He is unique and forever the God-man. And note that he says, he said, the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. We are by nature servants. There is never a time when you are a ruler or a master or a king. You are, by your nature, you are made to serve. And so when you serve, it is not anything special. When, when, you, when you see, it is, it is not anything special. It is expected. We celebrate those who serve because sin has so warped our expectations that when we serve, we look at it as if it's something special. But God looks at servants, when we might look at a tree that, with green leaves. Of course it has green leaves. It's a tree. You are a servant. You are made to serve. It is your form. It is your nature. Christ is unique. He was by his nature, God. Though he serves, it was not his role. It was not his nature. He was to be served. All was made for him. And yet he took on that nature and humbled himself. Christ is special. There is no one like him. You should stand in awe of the incarnation. That he who was God emptied himself, 
and took on the form of a servant. And the word continues to say, it says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that word humbled, it means that to make low, I want to read you this definition because it's so powerful. It says, to, to make low, to bring into a humble condition, to reduce to mean circumstances, to be ranked below others who are honored or rewarded, to have a modest opinion of oneself, devoid of all haughtiness. It is a posture of lowliness. And Christ, when he took on human form, that was his posture. It is not just not being prideful, but it is a proactive posturing of yourself as a lowly one. Earlier on in Philippians 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And this is, this is not a, a deep theological principle. We know how to do this. And, and I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Who in here has a, has a job? You're not in the ministry, you just have a regular job. Okay. Okay. Anybody a student? Students? Okay. All right. So let, let's say um, if, you, if you have a reg regular job, there's probably a CEO, right, who runs the whole company. Let's say that you, you have the opportunity to meet that CEO. Or, or if you're a university student, you meet the president of your university. Or maybe you're not in either category and you run into the mayor of Philly, right? Very, imp a very important people, right? The CEO could probably have you fired if he wanted to or she wanted to, right? The president of the university could, if you get on their good side, you, you know, maybe your bill will be a little lower next semester. <laughs> right? The mayor certainly can make sure that good things happen in your neighborhood, right? If you meet this person, and you have the opportunity to meet this person, and, and they say, you know what? Great to meet you. I've been doing this special thing where I'm trying to meet more people in the community. Would it be okay if maybe in a couple of weeks I came over for dinner to your house just to get to know you a little bit? And you'd probably say, okay, sure. Of course. Would, would love the opportunity. And you would probably get ready for that occasion, right? You're not just going to just do whatever. You're going to get ready for it. You're, you're probably going to make sure that you go out and get yourself a nice new suit, get the kids all dressed. You're going to have a conversation with your kids if you have kids. <laughs> you're going to say, my boss's 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 boss is coming over, and you better not embarrass me. This man can hurt mommy. He can hurt daddy. So you better make sure you obey. Or the president of the university, you better make sure you don't embarrass me. Or the, or, or the mayor, right? If they came to when they came to dinner, you would, if they showed up late, you wouldn't even talk about it. You wouldn't even mention it. They could be an hour late. You'd be like, okay, come on in, come on in, of course. Come on, you could be hungry as all get out. But, right? You ain't going to say nothing. Come on in. We've been waiting for you. We're so glad you're here. Here's the seat at the head of the table. Do you want any water? What, how can I serve you? Right? When they're talking at dinner, you wouldn't say anything. You would just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, that, that, of course, that's a wonderful point. Right? You would listen more than you spoke because you're in the presence of somebody who's very important, who has some power. Right? Why do we do all these things? Because we consider this person more important than us. The amazing thing about scripture, you're supposed to treat everybody that way. 
everybody. Whether they are poorer than you, have less degrees than you, live in a bad part of town, smell funny, count others more significant than yourself. If they are not you, treat them more significant than you do yourself. Treat everybody that way. That is the meaning of humility, to count others more significant than yourselves. And it is what Christ did. It is what Christ did. The, the great ruler of all, in his human form, he, he took off his garments, wrapped himself in a towel, knelt down and washed feet. So he calls us to clothe ourselves with humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourself with humility. Walk in the footsteps of the suffering servant. But note that he continues to say, he said he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obey, in the Greek, just means obey. <laughs> just means obey. To hear, to listen attentively, and to do what you're asked. Just means to obey. But there's a powerful thing about this, because if you look very closely at this verse, he said he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Intimately connecting humility with obedience. That if you're going to walk in the path of the suffering servant, if you're going to follow in his footsteps, there will come a time when you will have to do what you are told. And that is a hard truth for us. Because we prize in our culture independence and self-determination and freedom. But Christ calls us to humility and obedience. But that does not mean that it's not okay to, to share your, your opinion or to discuss things. Psalm 62 tells us to pour out our hearts before the Lord. Jesus in the garden, again, he had received this command at some point in eternity past. He had obeyed the command to go and serve. He had stepped into the world. But at the moment before his death, as he's about to be betrayed, he's in the garden. He's, he's talking to his father about this decision his father has made. He's saying, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. And he prayed and he labored. He, he had a discussion with his father. But at the end, he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Did he stop being humble because he had a discussion? No. And so as we are called to obey, it's, it's okay to talk. If you get an instruction from a ministry leader or a pastor or somebody at work, it's okay to bring up your opinion. But at the end of the day, will you choose to act in humility if they make a decision that you disagree with? Because all of us are called to submit to somebody. Romans 13.1 talks about how citizens are to obey the government. But the government themselves are accountable to the Lord who raises and lowers rulers. 1 Peter 5.1 tells the flock in the church to submit to the elders. But the elders themselves must have to give, a, give an account for each of you one day before Christ. Ephesians 5.22, wives are called to submit to their husbands. 
But 1 Peter 3, 7 says that husbands, be careful how you treat your wife because God will close the doors of heaven to you. So all have authority over them. All are called at some point to be humble and to obey. And this is a hard, hard truth for us. And I, I, I experienced it just a couple weeks ago. In fact, I think it was last week. I have, um, at my job, I have, everybody, I have, I have a boss, right? In fact, I have a number of bosses. And one of them, who's one of the most senior people, um, he had essentially an opening above me, right? He was going to pick the person who I was supposed to report to. And I, of course, had an opinion about this. Me and this other guy, we were going to report to this person. We had a pretty strong opinion about who we wanted it to be, and he was choosing from two people. And so we, we told him, we had discussions with him, we almost pleaded with him, like, pick this person for these six reasons, right? Over and over we advised him. At the end of the day, he decided to go with somebody else. And that was hard. That was hard. Because I didn't really respect this person as much as this other person. But, I mean, for a lot of reasons. And so I had to, I had to make a choice. Because I had, the, I had the opportunity to say, you know what, maybe I don't want this role. Maybe I want to go do another part of, work another part of the company because I don't want to work for this part. But I, I felt the Lord pricking me to say, Nyron, he's not calling you to sin. He's calling you to do something that you disagree with. Are you going to obey? Or in your pride, are you going to go do something else? And so I had to submit and say, Lord, you've put this person above me in authority. They've made a decision. I gave my opinion. And now I need to obey and to do what's asked, and help this person succeed. Right? You have to walk in humility. And so when your ministry leader tells you to do something that you don't quite fit into, tell them that. But if they say, you know what, I really need you to do this, obey. When your boss asks you to do something that you don't want to do, or come in at a time that you don't want to come in at, it's okay to tell them, as Christ told the Father, what he really wanted but at the end of the day, you're going to have to make a choice. Will you be humble? Will you obey? Christians should not be the rebels on their jobs. Christians should not be the rebels in the church. Christians should not be the rebels in their homes. If you're going to walk in the footsteps of the suffering servant, you're going to have to obey. And it's hard. But it's what he calls us to. He calls us to a choice, to prize looking like Jesus, walking by the Spirit more than we prize the things our culture values, of independence, of doing your own thing. It's what Christ did. And he was obedient it says here, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to give his life. Then he goes on, because there's good news. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, not one missing, Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The suffering servant, the humble one, the obedient one is exalted 
exalted. But notice the therefore, because the therefore connects the humility, it connects the obedience, it connects the, the humiliation to the exaltation, to the glory. It is the path to the glory. Therefore, because of what he has done, because of his obedience, his humility, his commitment to serve those who did not deserve to be served, he is highly exalted and sits now at the right hand of the Father. Humility and obedience has its reward. Because all of us, regardless of whether or not your boss is just, your pastor is a good pastor, or your husband, or your wife, or your children treat you correctly, regardless of all this, all of us will one day have to give an account to the one who is the master of us all. And so commit yourself to serve as Christ served, to obey in humility, because you are looking forward. You're looking forward to the day when Christ himself will say, well done, good and faithful servant. But it requires that you commit yourself, that you make a choice to walk by the Spirit, to choose to serve in humility and obedience. Father, thank you so much for Christ, for Jesus. And Lord, thank you for your example to us. You have done what no one else could do. You've atoned for our sin. Not because you had to, but you did so out of obedience and out of love. And we, we praise you, we thank you, and we ask you by your Holy Spirit to empower us to make that choice moment by moment to walk in your footsteps. To make a choice to sacrifice, to serve, to posture ourselves in humility and in obedience. Keep us in this, we pray. Amen. And now we transition to a time of communion. Brothers, you can come up.